stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. everyone uh it's andy richter and this is the three questions uh the podcast that asks the same three questions or implies the same three questions to every uh, one of my guests uh and today uh i have a very funny very talented guy um kind of you know in the same milieu as me uh, improv talk show uh self-loathing um i'm talking today uh to chris gethard how are you chris I'm good. I've never, I've never felt more in common with someone when you lay it out like that. <laughs> I knew, I knew you would know it was meant with love and appreciation, yeah. and yeah, 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 a lot of truth um, there too. On my <laughs> and uh, and and you uh, said before we started, you're wearing some orange Beats headphones that you got from the Conan show. Yeah, these were given to me in some sort of gift bag. When I did your show, and wow. as the video popped up, I I said I better call this out. I'm not wearing them to butter you up. Oh yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. Them, I wear them on a regular basis. They're beats. They, they look. Uh, they look red from here, so I wouldn't even have really sort of clocked oh, them. Should have kept orange. my mouth shut. Though. Oh, that's all right. Should've that's all right. God and, damn. And I mean, mouth. and they, I just sort of thought they were orange headphones. Anyway, I, I mean, Conan yeah. might have been like, he's you know, he. I'm sure that he his ego is large enough that anything orange is his. He assumes. Yeah. At this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like fair. Yeah. Any Florida team. Is like just uh, uh-huh. ripping him off in his uh-huh. estimation. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, how are you? Where Where are you at right now? I'm in New Jersey where I live. And yeah. my son is sleeping while my wife is out buying mulch for the garden. It's a very idyllic, lame, <laughs> boring, suburban yeah. life that I have now. Yeah. I was like very a very cool underground comedy person up until just a few years ago. And then when I went lame, I went like all in on being lame. Yeah, you got to, well, you got to hit it hard. There's no, yeah. You Because that's really, if you're going to go from cool to lame, you got to go as hard on the lame as you did on the cool. And I mean, you know, you were practically fond halfway with the lame. Oh, yeah. I mean, my (laughs) reputation in New York was true, true tastemaker. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Now, did you actually, uh, was this a return to New Jersey? Because I know you're originally from New Jersey. Yeah, I grew up in Jersey and then. I started doing comedy when I was still a kid. I, I went to Rutgers University, so my whole life was New Jersey. I worked at a magazine about New Jersey. Like, everything was New Jersey. And then started doing comedy when I was at Rutgers. And, and uh, in the summer after I, – I was just so horrifically depressed as a, as a young person. I wanted to keep doing comedy because it made me happy. And UCB had just started up their classes there. So when I was 19, I started taking the train into the city – 
And for years, for three or four years, I was just a Jersey guy who would come into the city and do comedy. And then eventually I lived in New York for 16 years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we had our kid and it was time to go home. It's time to go raise him in Jersey. How, I mean, was that a, a difficult decision to go back to Jersey or were you kind of happy to I was, home? I was cooked. It was harder for my wife. My wife had lived in the city for 25 years. She had, she had no affection for nor connection to New Jersey. Right. So that was a hard sell. But l- luckily her brother lives here and he has two kids. So it made a lot of sense to get our son around his cousins because our son will be an only child unless a real accident occurs. <laughs> um, so it was very hard for her. I was ready to go. I, I had a very interesting few years there where, you know, I kind of... Uh, it, it's, this is going to sound like a person complaining about success. I want to recognize that I am aware of it. It doesn't mean that it wasn't real. Like my TV show had gone from public access up to the cable ranks and um, wound up on True TV, a live show going out national. And that was very cool. But there were like posters on the subway and stuff. And, you know, I had fought my whole life to kind of get more successful. And then I found out that I was, it was making me very paranoid and very stressed. And when we were on public access and there was a point where it hit this sweet spot that I will always pine for where like, I would be, I'd like walk. I remember once walking through Washington square park with my wife. And as we walked past this person was just like, yo, Chris, what's up, man. And I was like, nothing, dude. How are you? He's like, good, man. And my wife was like, people are watching. You're like a New Yorker guy. Like you're a New yeah. Yorky guy that New York likes because of our public access show. Then it went to cable and I'll never forget. They put up subway posters, but I was not successful nor wealthy enough to, I still took the subway every day. Yeah. So it's this like really strange stretch where I was like, I don't, I don't like this. Like I need to be able to take the subway and, there's like a thing where somebody took a picture of me while I was eating. I was eating in a diner by myself and someone tagged me in a picture of me eating in that diner at that time. And I was like, I think I got to get out of the city, man. <laughs> I think I got to get out of this city. This well, was there, weird. was there any sort of concrete fear or was it just kind of the general paranoia of the sort of animal fear of people staring at you? There was, there was one time where we were, I was waiting for the F train with my wife and somebody was whispering the word Gethard behind us going, like, yeah. Gethard, Gethard, Gethard. And they like, I am, a, I'm the type of person, like if somebody comes up to me and is like, Hey man, I like your stuff. I'd be like, Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. And we would talk the whole ride. Like, yeah, yeah. that's what I was used to for years in New York. I occupied a very sweet spot. Uh, um, but they just kind of wanted to see if I was going to turn around and react but you got to realize like I've had real mental health problems in my life. I, there was a stretch where I was on a, uh, a medication called Risperdal in my 20s, which is for people with paranoia. If you look it up, it's a pretty heavy duty drug to be on because I used to think that police were following me. Like I would drive my car and I would become convinced the car behind me was a cop car and I'd pull over and let them pass. Like that was happening on a regular basis. So like I've been medicated for extreme paranoia. Yeah, yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how people do it. I don't know how you do it or Conan does it. Like I was on two episodes of The Office after Steve Carell left and people still talk to me about it all the time. I'm like, what's yeah, your yeah. life like if you're Rain Wilson? You know, like what's your life like if you're yeah. 
John Krasinski or, or Andrew well, McKenzie. Like, I, I, I mean, do <clears throat> my career the past few years has been very suffering, and some of that is just outright self sabotage because I don't, I didn't handle that well. Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, you had been medicated for paranoia. You know, yeah. where you feel like people are following. So yeah, you, you're, you were. I mean, and I don't mean to be a dick, but I, I mean, I mean it more as a joke. You were asking for it, you know, oh, like you, you. I fought so hard for the yeah, chance. Yeah, yeah. To, I fought to, so hard for it. Yeah. And I mean, and I don't, I mean, I'm a fairly, uh, and I mean, and this isn't, you know, I don't think that this is like strange at this point, or it's so weird to hear that somebody who does what I do for a living or what you do for a living is kind of a shy person. I think that yeah. that duality can be easily understood by most people now where like, yes, I want to perform for people, but I want to control the context of it. That doesn't yeah. mean that I'm that, you know, that I'm like a buffet that you can just step up and demand entertainment from at any time. And I remember, especially early on, like in the early 90s, and I, I've talked about this before, going back to Illinois at Christmas time and taken my mom to Best Buy so she could do some Christmas shopping. And I was sort of just browsing. And when we left, she said, there were a couple guys from Best Buy following you around and whispering and pointing at you. And she said, it is like, isn't that great? And I was saying, mom, think about that. Like that's, yeah, you know, like think about if, if I told you there were people following around, pointing and whispering, you know why, you know, the logical reason why you understand it intellectually, but you're still basically feel like you're being followed and stared at. And, you know, that's, you know, on one hand, that's what we ask for. But on the other hand, it's not great when you're out in the world, you know. My shrink talked to me about it because um, at first my shrink was like, I can't hear you complaining that people are taking pictures of you when you've tried to be on TV your whole life. Like, yeah, you yeah. got to get over it. And, and I took that note and I was like, yeah, I get it. This is weird. But then she came around and she was like, you know, the worst stretch of your life, you used to think people were following you. And she's like, and now there are people actually taking clandestine photos of you. Mm -hmm. It happened three times. It happened at a diner. There's another time I was on a date with my wife and someone posted photos of it. And another time where there was a guy, a guy posted photos of me on the subway. And he said, man, Chris Gethard bites his nails a lot. And he posted a picture of me biting my thumbnail. And I actually wrote him a message and I was like, hey, like you can post whatever you want. I was like, just so you know, I was chewing on my thumbnail because you were acting so... I know exactly who you are and you were making me so nervous that I was biting my nail because I could tell you were doing something and I'm glad you were just taking a photo, but I was really, and the person to their credit wrote back and was like, oh my God, I'll take it down. I'm so sorry. Like, but my shrink was like, there was a stretch in your life where you were really kind of going crazy and you used to think cops were following you when you were 23 years old. And she, she very astutely pointed out, she's like, now people are taking clandestine photos of you. And she was like, I think what's happening here is you're really scared you're going crazy again because it's bringing back all these feelings. But she was like, this time it's real. So it's okay. Like, you're not crazy. Yeah. She's like, you're reacting. You only remember this feeling when it was not real. And that scares the shit out of you. Because you- yeah. It was real. That that was so scary. She's like, now it's real. So for you to feel this paranoia now, it's real. It's justified. You can let it go. I was like, oh, 
thank you. But I, you know, that was a big part of moving back to Jersey, obviously to raise the kid around his cousins. But for me, I also, I know this place so well. And I know that the people of New Jersey in a way that I am such a fan of are just pretty thoroughly unimpressed by everything. Mm -hmm. And that feels really good. Yeah. Uh, that feels really good. So that's, that's why I came back here. Cause I, 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 I don't know if you feel the same way about Illinois, but I'm like, I've never ever felt totally comfortable in the entertainment industry. Like as everything at the UCB theater blew up, I always felt like I was still somewhat on the outside looking in. When I finally got there, I always felt like, I felt like I finally got there from the perspective of an outsider. I did public access TV to kind of force, I forced a show on public access to get such a cult following that the networks picked it up. Like, Everything always felt like outside looking in. And um, with Jersey, I just understand backwards and forwards. Like people don't care. Like they, in a way that's great. They're, they don't care if the, like, oh, you're on TV, fancy you, who gives a shit? And that's yeah, kind of yeah. how I always grew up feeling too. So I feel really comfortable. And even when people have recognized me here, it's it's generally on a wavelength where they quickly sense that like, I don't, care and they don't need to care and it's all good it's a gig yeah that i actually i mean it's funny because i actually find that more in new york that people are kind of blase about it because well you know and it well and in la too but i mean in la everybody's kind of always looking for somebody famous even when you're at the hardware store yeah. you know there's a chance you might see somebody from tv or somebody from the movies but in new york it always seemed and what i liked about new york versus la was that it's not just, you know la is just show business town pretty much you know i mean and whether that's music or whatever it's just a show business town whereas the important, fancy, noticeable people in New York are from all different kinds of things. Like show business is just one of the categories of like, there's a guy you recognize. I mean, you know, where, you know, in the old days, it could have been like, there's Donald Trump and he wasn't show business. He just right. was, a, you know, a man about town or, you know, there's fashion people or literary people that you can see. Um, I always found it more so when you go, like, you know, like when I would visit my ex-wife's family in Louisiana and we'd go to the mall, that's when I would feel, you know, there would be 10 kids following me around the mall in Slidell, Louisiana. And that was when it was like, okay, this is, they're just not used to seeing anybody they recognize. So, and they got time. So they're just going to follow me around. And that's when it felt weird, you know, that's but I mean, I, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I feel like Jersey is perfect. I feel like Jersey is perfect, period. Like, I'm a big fan. But, like, I grew up in a part of New Jersey where if you if you took a right out of the front door of my house, walked up the hill half a block and turned around, you could see the New York City skyline. Yeah. Like, where it's this amazing place that's so used to being close to all of that and also feeling immensely far away from all of that. Mm-hmm. It's like you can see it. You can see the skyline from where I grew up, from yeah, my block. Yeah. You could see the skyline, which right. was really frustrating as a as an art as a kid who was like had no idea how to get into the arts. I was like, it's right there. But also, it's like it's not Louisiana. You know what? It's not a small town in Louisiana where it's 
impossible yeah yeah to where it's, it's completely crazy that you'd see yeah no it's like you grew up close <clears throat> enough that everyone kind of just quietly is like uh, new york is new york they hate us they think everybody makes fun of jersey like all the new york people are fancy like that's fine like i remember yeah, yeah. in school there was a real divide too there were like some kids where their their parents like their dads were commute into the city for work every day. And those kids, we kind of, everybody sort of made fun of or resented of like, Oh, you think you're better than us. Like your city, your city family. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it sits in this real sweet spot of like, people aren't blown away by the idea of stuff being fancy, but they're not craving it either. And man, do I love it. Yeah. And do I love it. Well, what kind of household did you grow up in? What what did your parents do and how many kids were there? You know? It was me and my brother. Um, I grew up in a house directly across the street from the house my dad was raised in. My grandparents still lived there. Um, his sister lived around the block. We could look through my neighbor's yard into her yard. My yeah. mom's parents lived two blocks away. My mom's sister lived two blocks away in the opposite direction. So it was very... Uh, very close knit, very Irish Catholic family. My grandparents on my mom's side were both from Ireland, both immigrants. And um, there's a Catholic church three blocks away. Pretty much the whole neighborhood, all those families went to that Catholic church. We weren't the only family where like a bunch of your aunts and uncles and cousins all lived in the same area. So pretty Irish Catholic that way, pretty close connection to my grandparents. Um like my bedroom window, I could see into my grandfather's backyard. And he he wound up being like a real crazy person in a way that I really loved and found inspiring. Um, so yeah, it was really, it was really, in that sense, I, I always felt like I grew up in the 80s and 90s, but sort of felt like I was raised in a very 1950s feeling neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, always, I always felt that. Like most of uh, my parents met at the Catholic church that I mentioned my grandmother on my dad's side was a teacher there. And I always felt like there were a lot of families like that. So it always felt like it was hanging on to being like 50s, 60s type values. Yeah. Well, that's uh, very much a, that's a, it's a rarity. I mean, it's a rarity and especially, yeah, yeah. To have, and also, you know, to hold on to kind of an ethnic kind of identity too. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in this town that's um, legendarily diverse and always has been. Like when I when I was a freshman in high school, there were over they told us there were forty different languages smoke, spoken amongst the student body, and that was in nineteen ninety five. Wow. Um, so, but it was this town that was really diverse. But where we lived on the blocks that were mostly Irish Catholic, and then uh, next to us was the black neighborhood, and then there was a Haitian neighborhood, and then the Italian neighborhood the Jewish neighborhood, the Protestant neighborhood. And then right in the middle was this very weird thing where there was a private community. Actually, the first gated community in the United States is this place, Llewellyn Park, which is right in the middle of my town. And you're not allowed to drive through it. You're not allowed to walk through it. And it's immensely rich people. Like Thomas Edison used to live there. Whoopi Goldberg lives there now. Wow. So it was this real... It, when you think of it like that, like there's this town in the middle that you can't walk or drive through. And the rest of the town was like a donut that surrounded it. And wherever you lived on the donut, you could probably point at anywhere on the donut. And in my generation, I could probably tell you what your economic status was and, and what 
your ethnic background was based wow. on where you lived on the donut. It was wow. a, a, a very, very strange place to grow up. And I have a lot of, a lot of love for it. And also I look back at a lot of it and I go, it was complete chaos, very much raised. Like in that generation that was like, I've been laughing a lot lately because I have a three-year-old son now. So I, I'm looking back at it a lot and I go, I was in this exact generation where it was like, like there's Satanists everywhere. And if you ever see a van, it's probably someone who's going to kidnap you <laughs> and look at the milk carton. There's kidnapped kids on the side of the milk right. carton. And, and if anybody ever hands you a Mickey mouse tattoo, don't take it. It's LSD. Like every Halloween, check the apples. There's probably razor blades in them. And that was everything that was drilled into our heads. And yet I was also of that generation that was like, okay, the sun's up, go outside, come back for lunch if you feel like it. If not, we'll assume you ate lunch at one of your friend's houses. Just it, one, once it gets dark, come back for dinner. And there's no cell phones. There, my, our parents did not know where we were at any given point. Yeah, mine neither. Yeah. Yet we were completely convinced that like satanic D&D playing uh evildoers were going to kidnap us at every turn. Yeah, So I was yeah. right in that. And also growing up in North Jersey, we had the extra added bonus of them saying, you know, I was, I was right at the ta last generation uh, where the cold war was still a thing. So we were also told, Hey, if the Russians ever nuke Manhattan, um, the people, a few towns closer to New York, they'll be lucky because they'll just die but we'll all just have like third degree burns and radiation poisoning out here. <laughs> so I, it was this really strange place to grow up, a strange time and place where it was kind of like the kids ran the asylum and we were all going to get nuked anyway and kidnappers. And it was weird. It was yeah. weird. It was a weird way to grow up. Yeah. I think about it a lot. It's, it's also interesting that it was so defined. Like you could really you know, like you said, you know, you know where, where you're from and who you are and like where you belong, you know, and, and that's probably, I, I imagine in some ways that could be kind of stifling. Oh, it filled me with an anger that I still am getting over. I've had yeah. friends, I've had friends point out to this day, like I, I, you know, I, I, I've, I moved back to Jersey and it was the pandemic and I just had a kid. And I reconnected with a bunch of my Jersey friends pretty hard when I moved back out here. And we'd always stayed in touch, but you know, I was always kind of off chasing the chasing the dreams. And I've had a lot of people tell me, like, um, I didn't I did not realize that I was perceived as angry as I was. Mm. Like I, I was very driven, but I was also pretty pissed. And I think I had a pretty acute sense from a young age. I did not like authority. I did not trust adults. I was just from a young age. I was like a pretty shy, nerdy kid, but I had some anger in my guts. And I think a lot of it is growing up there. Like, like you say, like very well aware. Like I, I grew up on the half, half of town that was the less well-to-do half of town. And I saw that certain kids had it really hard because of that. I saw that kids from the better areas were cut a lot more slack in school. I'll never forget, like a pretty defining thing for me was, I remember a kid who got suspended in high school for a thing that I would not have gotten suspended for, but he was a black kid from a really bad part of town. And yeah. I remember being like, man, 
he got no leeway. Yeah. That kid got no leeway. And he was a good, funny kid. I had known him my whole childhood. I was like, he got expelled for handing out a flyer. To be granted, he 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 was handing out a flyer saying, hey, party at my house this weekend. Bring your own booze. Bring your own weed. Which is like, yeah, you're going to get in trouble for that. That's a pretty right, dumb right. flyer to hand out at school. It has your address on it. Like, you know, right. like, it's at your house. But he got expelled, like, instantly. And I remember all of us, a lot of people just going like, whoa, he was a nice kid kid yeah i don't think he gets expelled if he's from a different part of town i think he gets suspended or he gets detention right or he gets a call home but i don't think or just a talking to yeah 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 and just i remember from a young age being like man like where you're from and how much money you have really matters and i hate it yeah and i still kind of hate it and it it's taken me a long time to come to grips with the fact that it was such a part of my anger growing up. Yeah. I always, I, I, uh, cause I have authority issues too, but it's not, uh, it's probably more uh, sublimated than, than I think yours are. And, and I mean, I was always, but I always found, I think it was, I think it was just the powerlessness of being a kid. Yeah. And and it was one thing that I always wanted to and I, I mean and that was, you know, it was sort of like I think it started with my mom and dad splitting up and being taken away from my dad and moved back to my grandparents and then my mom kind of because of the end of her marriage kind of checking out and just kind of being left with my grandma and grandpa. And just feeling like, hey, I didn't have any, where'd everybody go? Why are we here? Why can't I see my dad? And all this, just this powerlessness. And and then also kind of like never really feeling any, like there was any respect for me as a human being, as a kid. And that was something I always yes. tried tried to show my kids was at least some respect for them and and which which included sort of the ability to apologize to them if I made a mistake because I never felt I I never felt like anybody made a mistake you know like I don't it was always if if I got in trouble for something or if I got yelled at for something that wasn't my fault it was kind of like well tough shit you know like yeah you got yelled at you just gotta you know lump it uh and I, I I mean, did you do you think was that kind of thing happening at home too, where you were kind of you weren't feeling listened to or something, or is it? Do you think it was mainly just the milieu that you were in? Well, you know my my parents are great, and they're still great, and they were great. Um, I look back, my dad makes a lot more sense to me now that I have a kid. Yeah, there's like some things that until I had a kid never made total sense about my dad growing up, and now I'm like, okay, he was stressed out and he was exhausted and he was tired. Like he was one of those like dads who he worked around the clock. I think he took a lot of pride in work, but also like to a degree where it was like he he was. I've had a few friends of mine tell me, um, I, I've been my new stand up hour. I'm talking a lot about how I'm like now I'm a dad and I'm like thinking a lot about my dad. And I've had two different friends of mine from childhood describe my dad as like, he's the nicest guy I ever met. But the day I met him, I knew I never wanted to see him angry. Like that oh, was wow. his, like, you could just tell like, don't piss this guy off. Like, yeah. And he was that. So my parents were pretty great. 
my house is safe haven, but like one of the defining aspects I think for me is that growing up in kind of a tough neighborhood, my older brother, um, he got bullied bad. Mm. And I was a few years younger than him and I was seeing it. And I saw that there were no consequences for it. So I always had a real bullshit detector for authorities. Cause I was like, there was, there was like an incident I'll never forget where we got, my mom got a call. You got to get down to the school. There's been a thing. We go down there and my brother had gotten, this bully had gone after him and we had to pick my brother up and he was in bad shape. And, uh, my mom said, uh, you know, so what, what's going to happen? And they said, well, we, and this is sad and I don't know the answer. Um, but I know that they did not do the right thing. They basically said this kid who went after your son, his parents are alcoholics. And if we get him in trouble at school, he's going to get abused. So we have to just let it lie. And it's like, that is bad on every level. That's mm-hmm. bad on every, and I was younger than my, my brother was in middle school. So I was probably in fourth or fifth grade when this thing happened. And I never forgot realizing like, I look back now, I go, okay, so you should be calling like, you should be calling like the state, like the division of youth and family services should be in that house, getting that kid away from those alcoholic parents. But what you can't do is say, okay, get the kid to school. Cause that's a safe haven. And if he's violent to another kid, that kid just has to take it. And we're because his parents, we're not going to step in when we know his parents are abusive and we're not going to step in when he's abusing other kids. We just have to let it go. There were things like that. I remember same that same middle school, everyone I've ever met who went to my middle school around my time, we all joke about how we are completely traumatized. I had a friend who lived in my neighborhood who there were rumors that there were these kids from a neighboring town, much tougher town coming up and they were like beating kids up and taking their stuff. And, uh, my friend and his brother went to walk home from school one day. We were in sixth grade and my friend gets to this corner and sees these kids and they turn around, they go back to the school. They go, Hey, these kids that we've heard, these kids are coming up from orange and beating kids up. And we think they're right there. And they said, Oh, where are they? And they said, Oh, they're standing by the billboards. And they were told by the teachers who they went to, Oh, well that's off school grounds. So we can't do anything about it. And they said, so what do we do? And they said, well, you have to deal with it off. It's off school grounds. It's not for us to deal with. And my friends said, okay. And they tried to walk home and these kids beat the shit out of them and took their stuff. And I was just young and seeing things like that and going like, you can't trust teachers. You can't trust, you know, like there'd be, we'd all go and hang, like we'd play down at the uh, church parking lot. There were basketball courts down there and there'd be fights down there. And I'm like, the priests live right next door and they're not doing anything about it. I was like, everyone who's an authority figure is making like, just, I just felt so on our own as kids. Like you felt very unlistened to, I've always felt more like, oh, you can't, adults aren't going to do shit for you. Um, and you kind of have to learn how to protect yourself. So I was a very angry kid for a while and a very defensive kid for a while. And it was not until it was not until my early 20s where I started to realize that not everybody felt that way or grew up that way. Like there was a a strange amount of kind of tolerated violence when I was a kid or, in, or like a a real strange amount of looking the other way. And I look back and I go, "Oh, you know, like that story about the kid with the alcoholic parents. I'm like, you're not protecting that kid by letting him be violent in school. You're not doing mm-hmm. anything to help no. him. Like, no. Like, 
I don't want this kid's abusive parents to beat him up. But now I'm in my 40s and I'm like, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. Pardon my French. I'm like, you didn't help him. You didn't help my brother. You just no. let this weird, dark cycle go. Right. You just said life is really tough. Yeah, life is you know, horrible. Nothing so we, we just, can do about it. Let's yeah. let it resume. And I just, yeah. was, I was a very, and there's a million, as you can imagine, there are a million examples of things like that, that just as a kid made me feel like, well, I don't trust anybody. I don't particularly yeah. like authorities and I don't really trust people. Yeah. And it took me a very long time to unwrap that. Very long time. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can't you tell my loves are growing? At what point, I mean, how does then kind of wanting to entertain people uh, live alongside that? I mean, because I imagine that's something that started as a, as a young person. Like you mentioned, seeing the city and being a young person and wanting to be creative. Um, was it, what, I mean, were you interested in entertaining people or were you interested in kind of just like being acknowledged by people? I think probably acknowledged. I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Um, and I also think I need an outlet to place this stuff somewhere. Um, I, when I was in eighth grade, the summer after eighth grade, my brother grabbed me one day and he was like, my friends are putting on this concert. You should come. And him and another friend of mine, my age, my brother brought us to this church basement in another part of town and his best friend had booked a bunch of punk rock bands. They had gotten involved in like the New Jersey punk rock scene. And that was the first time where I was like, Oh, these are like other kids. Like these people are two or three years older than me and they're screaming and they're yelling and they're playing music. And I saw that and I loved it. Yeah. And I, it was like, you know, in a way, in a way that's very cliche for 
in many ways, like I saw punk rock and I was like, oh, these people barely know how to play music, but the I it's clicking with me on a level where that's not what matters. Like what matters yeah. is me going like, oh, these are other people from this area of the world. Like these kids are from Nutley. One of the bands was from Nutley. That was like two or three towns away. I was 13. They were like 17. I was like, oh, they're finding a way to scream and shout and nobody's stopping them. And um I'll, and I'll, have fun. It was I, the having yes. fun. Yeah. Yeah. And turning it into this thing too, where it was like, and here's a bunch of people who all like are kind of freaks and nerds and they're in this room and they're bouncing off the walls and people are shouting and singing and it's fun. It's like angry and it's unapologetic, which I really liked and it's fun. And then I wound up going to a ton of shows throughout high school and that became a big part of it. And punk shows. Punk shows, yeah, yeah. Like, like going to concerts in VFW halls and and Elks lodges and people's basements and um, seeing like seeing bands like local bands and and bigger bands passing through and like, there was this guy Adam in his package who was from Philly who was really big for for North Jersey kids of my age because it was just him writing these really funny songs and it was but it was just him and like electronic programmed music and he didn't have a band. Like the package was his computer and it would play the songs and he'd write songs about meatballs and he'd write songs about, you know, he has a song where the whole premise of the song is how come goalies and hockeys aren't just big obese men who weigh a thousand pounds and can block the entire <laughs> net. And I would listen to that. And that was, that was inching closer. Cause it was like, there's comedy, comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a band called Weston from Pennsylvania. And I loved going to see Weston and I realized because they would talk so much in between their songs. They'd like tell a bunch of jokes and take off, you know, strip down to their underwear and play the whole set in their underwear and be making fun of each other. I started to see in the music scene, oh, there's these examples of people that are really funny. And I'm kind of like gravitating towards the punk thing, but a lot more of it is about being funny. Like there's a band called Servotron that dressed up as robots when they played. And I love yeah, Ser yeah. I look back, I'm like Servotron. It's not like Servotron was like, you know, the next Bob Dylan, as far as like, you can imagine what the lyrics were, but the idea that this band was all robots made me laugh hard. And I loved that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simultaneous to that, I was a big pro wrestling fan. And I saw the uh, Andy Kaufman, I'm from Hollywood documentary, which I originally watched because it was a wrestling thing. And then I was mm -hmm. like, who's this? Yeah. And I became obsessed with Andy Kaufman and that was on Comedy Central in those early days. So that's where I saw the young ones and kids in the hall. And that all started to mix together. And, um, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 in that early Comedy Central wave for me. And then mm -hmm. you look, I look back too. And my, like for me as a kid watching SNL, when I was in that formative age where we all love SNL, it was Mike Myers and, you know, and then you find out later he had a background in punk rock and kids in the hall were all punk rockers. And then yeah. not to blow smoke with you, but like when, when you and Conan, you know, back in those pimp bot masturbating bear days, it was just another example of like music taught me to feel a certain way that was very, very good. And I'm finding out that there are, is comedy that pushes the same buttons. Yeah. And I don't know if that's intentional and I don't know, you know, you later come to find out how many comedians also were exposed to independent music. But for me, it was this segue of like, my anger led me to punk rock. My punk rock led me to comedy. And then I was just in this generation where, um, you know, 
it was that mixture of Letterman and what you guys were doing, being totally obsessed with Andy Kaufman to like a, a, a strange degree as a child. And, uh, that's how it all kind of mixed together and into being creative. And a lot of me getting on stage was just like, holy shit, people are actually stopping and listening. And I get to say, I get to talk about stuff that makes me very angry and people are laughing and then I'm less angry about it. Like it was, it was a psychological thing for, I, I was doing comedy for two or three years before I ever did therapy. And uh, I don't, I think that they were very, very much hand in hand with me in the early days. Well, now those, those two did kind of marry in, in, especially with some of your, like your most early work where you, you know, you did a, a show about, about, you know, your mental health and, and yeah. about, you, you know, and, and was that like, was that a conscious decision or did that just sort of, and maybe talk a little bit about so that people that don't know the exact history of that can mm -hmm. kind of understand how just being an improv guy led to being, you know, uh, someone who made self-examination and revelation, uh, you know, like a, a big part of what you do. Yeah. Well, it's because I came up at UCB. And I was there in the relatively early days. I started in 2000. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny, I had Mike Birbiglia pointed out to me. Me and Mike Birbiglia are very good friends at this point. And he was like, you know, out of all the people from that wave of UCB success, he's like, there's this like much like hallowed, talked about era of UCB. He's like, everyone is known for being an actor except you. He's like, you're the only one who's known for being Chris Gethard. Like Bobby... Moynihan was one of my best friends. He did SNL, like Zach Woods, yeah. one of my best friends. He did The Office, like yeah. Ellie Kemper, like the, like, you know, people. Well, Berbiglia is, he's saying yeah. that about you, but he's, you know, yeah, but he's he known as not, being Mike Berbiglia. But yeah. he wasn't as hardcore. He predated UCB more than I did. Like he already oh, had I see. things up and running. And like as, stand up that he was doing. Yes, yeah. As far as like a guy who signed up for a class one day and then came out of that place. And that was the extent of my really the extent of my experience, like the only one. And, and you, you were there, like you were there in the early days too. And you can vouch for me that first theater that they had on 22nd street. I wasn't there for the solo arts days, but being like walking in and being someone who felt like punk rock, I walked into that first UCB theater. I was like, I get this vibe. This mm -hmm. feels to me like how it used to feel to go see a bunch of punk rock bands in a basement. Like, yeah, made sense. It felt very Chicago to me too. And I actually, my my then wife at the time and I lived four doors down the street. Oh. So we were very, very much. I mean, and that was just a coincidence. That was just a coincidence. And then Matt Walsh, who I've, you know, been friends with for 30 years or something, used to live on the above it. You know, yeah. used to live uh, above it. So we, in fact, I think their first year we had a shared New Year's Eve party where like some of the party was down there and some of the party was at, at our apartment and people were like going from one to the other. Uh, yeah. So yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a very fun, exciting time. It was very addicting and it was very cool. And um, it's sad that it fell apart in New York for a number of reasons, but I was lucky to be there when it was just, it was pretty pure and, you know, I think with the mental health stuff, because I did eventually do an HBO special about it. I've been very explicit in my work about it. It was, it was a, a lot of people came to know me because I was a guy who's kind of getting very real about that stuff. But 
at a certain point at UCB, I realized like I knew I was good, but I was getting invited to do ASCAT, which was mind blowing. Cause it used to be, I would go take my level one class. I'd drink a 40 in a parking lot with these two friends from my class where in New York, you wouldn't get, like, I feel like after a certain point, you'd just get arrested chugging forties in a parking lot after yeah, like, yeah. there was still a little Giuliani hadn't totally cleaned it up yet. So I would be 19 years old. I'd drink a 40 and I'd go watch ASCAT and ASCAT would be, you know, it'd be like Amy and the Mats and Ian. And then like you and Tina Fey and Adam McKay and then John Glazer. And I'd just be like 19 years old, drunk, just like, this is, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like it's the greatest thing. And then come up in the system there and eventually get invited to do the show and, I remember nights where I would do the show and this was many, many years ago where it would be Amy and Seth Meyers and Jason Sudeikis and Jack McBrayer and Brian Stack and Rachel Dratch and me. And that was the cast. Yeah. And you can imagine how scary that was for me. Yeah. Just, and two things started happening was one, I started to realize like, it is not, it is not. It is not a it is not a reflection of low self-esteem to say I'm not going to be the funniest person on stage tonight. It's mm-hmm. realism. When you're up there with Amy Poehler, guess what? You're at best if you have the best night of your life, you're still going to be the second funniest on right, stage. Right. She's automatic in that context, yeah. automatic, let alone with Jack and Glazer, all these people, you know, trying yeah. to keep up. So I go, it, it could, it could be freeing, you know, you oh. could be like, you know, like I don't have to do too much lifting here. Pressure's you know? not on me. Like yeah, yeah. they're going to do more than enough. But I started to realize like, I can't be the funniest one, but I'm just, mo- I'm the most willing to be honest out of most of the people up here. And that's not a knock on them. So ASCAT, I started doing the stories more than the scenes. Yeah. Um, and I'd get up there and I'd just tell these very real stories and I just realized like, and this was not just ASCAT, like even when I was coming up, like I said, like my two best friends coming up were Bobby Moynihan and Zach Woods. It's like, guess what? Like if that's who you come up with, that's a really good thing. It raises the bar for all of you. And that's how improv works, right? As you find your mm-hmm. generation and you all keep raising the bar, but like, I'm not going to be funnier than those guys. They're too good. They're Bobby's too funny. Zach's too smart, but I'm the one who will also get up here and say like, you know, I got put on a new medication that makes me shit blood and fall asleep at random times. So let me tell a story about that. And the crowd would respond to that. And I'd go, Oh, a lot of people in improv want to get behind a character and kind of wear it as a mask. For me, improv's teaching me how to be totally comfortable on stage so that I can just say the realest thing possible. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was kind of born out of this necessity of like, how am I going to stand out? Like, what's the muscle that I have that maybe some of the other people here don't use as much? Can I make mm-hmm. that the strongest muscle? So while I was doing all that, I started, um, you know, a lot of shows where standups would come through UCB and they started noticing that I was a very honest guy and they started inviting me to do their standup shows. And that kind of dragged me out beyond the borders of UCB and I became known as this guy who would just go on stand-up shows and tell some very honest stories. And um, then that mix kind of all synthesized. I, 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 I got a job on a sitcom in 2010, which made a lot of sense for a UCB person who had been doing it for 10 years. And then the sitcom bombed. And my agents told me to move to LA. They were like, you know, even though it bombed, like you can 
pilot season's going to be great for you the next couple of years. Like it's going to open a lot of doors. And I was like, I just don't want to. And uh, I wound up doing my public access show less than a year after this sitcom had been canceled. And a lot of it was just me going like, I've gotten really good at just saying like raw stuff and doing weird stuff and mm -hmm. being comfortable failing and, you know, doing shows at UCB that literally start at one in the morning where it's like the most fucked up bits. And it's, you know, Jason Manzukis is dressed as Osama bin Laden and Rob Riggle's doing fake coke off of a baby doll. And then I get to go out and do a bit. And I'm like, that's what I'm in love with. Yeah. So can I just go do that? And public access wound up being that the way for it. And uh, yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff I still needed to get off my chest. I was like, I just want to make a show that's that. I don't want to do more sitcom stuff. Yeah. And were you, I mean, were you struck by the fact that it was kind of, that you were put into a, an artistic situation, you know, you're, you're doing improv with these people that you feel like, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta keep up my end of the bargain, which is also then kind of like a professional. I mean, it's artistic, but it's also professional. Yeah. We're all there because we want to do this for a living. And, and that somehow that you're then like, that's the horse that's leading the personal cart. I mean, that, that like, do you feel like that there was growth, like when you were sharing this stuff, like that there was some kind of therapeutic use to it that, you know, that was, that, that had been sort of motivated by more professional, you know, like competitive concerns just with other performers? Yeah, it's really astute. Because well, I started realizing I'll go here and it'll get a big response and not everybody, and we'd get backstage sometimes and people would be like, the other improvisers would be like, dude, holy shit, like, is that story true? And I'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, you really went there, you know? And then they're doing scenes and making up characters based on, I started to realize, oh, like I'm getting the respect of my peers for doing this too. Like I'm finding my own lane out of necessity and they're really respecting the fact that I'm going there. And then simultaneous to that, I will never forget one of the weirdest nights of my life where I realized that things were changing for me. Um, I got to ASCAT one night and before we started, one of the people who worked at the UCB theater comes backstage in the green room and is like, Gether, do you know what's going on out there with all these kids? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, there's a bunch of kids who all have t-shirts that they made with your face on them and name on them. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And we all ducked our heads out. And this crew of kids, it wound up they were all college kids from NYU, had made like, let's get it started in here shirts. And there was this weird thing where I'd been on this like streak at ASCAT where it was, I was generally, it was really, it was an era where it was like Manzukis and me were the two people who hadn't been on TV much yet. And everybody yeah. else was either a writer at Conan or on SNL or blah, blah, blah. And it was like, they all started to notice that I was telling these really dark stories. And then this crew of kids just decided I was their guy. <laughs> and like, it was really strange. And, uh, it was, it was almost like they, they realized I was the underdog and they just decided to vocally root for me. And that was kind of the beginning of this very empowered stretch of my creativity where it was like, 
it was like, oh, like people are noticing. And like they specifically like me because I'm not doing well. Like they specifically (laughs) like I'm like the one guy who's not famous and I'm getting up there talking about like, oh, yeah, I, I got put on a new medication and I almost passed out while I was driving. So I pulled over in a rest stop and slept for four hours and I missed dinner with my parents. And I'd like tell a story like that. And they'd be like, yes. You're yeah, like yeah. not famous. You're not successful. You don't have your shit together. Yeah. You seem like you've given up. There's no hope. We love you for all the. And it was like, whoa, like it's hit a point. It's hit this weird point where I've gotten honest enough about my massive insecurity. And especially, I mean, this was like 2007, 2008. So I don't think that, you know, the idea that I'd get up there and be like, yeah, I got put on a new medication and it gives me like a boner, but I can't ever come. Like that wasn't a conversation <laughs> people were having. Like I just jerk off forever now. It fucking sucks, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Unintentional edging. And like I'd get up there and tell stories and people would be like, whoa. And I'd make I'd be able to make them funny and charming enough. Yeah. But it was pretty shocking in 2007, 2008 to go up and say some stuff like that. Yeah. Now less so, thank God. Um, but I'd get up there and I'd tell stories like that. And it it was this group of, of very young UCB ASCAT fans that were like, you are our guy. Yeah. And uh, that became the basis of me having this hot streak in New York where I could, I could put on shows and reliably sell tickets now. And I could try some very, very strange things because I knew the crowd was down and then those things would get some press. Um, and it, that started attracting some of the other performers who I think felt very much like they didn't have a place, like the people who didn't fit a certain mold. They started showing up to my stuff and we all kind of became friends and working together. And mm-hmm. it became like this, like you, you know, I feel like I'm rambling a lot, but the question's bringing back a lot of positive nostalgia of like, I had to find my lane personally in order to have a little bit of my own space professionally. And then that yeah. carved out more space personally. And that led to more professionally. And there's a few years there. It was this very, very strange thing where I was like, I'm still not making any money really, but I feel like I have been given this like blank check of creative freedom in the New York comedy scene because I got honest enough. And then this crew of college kids decided that, they were going to just live and die. Like they were just going to ride or die with me no matter how dark or weird I wanted to get. And that just built. And I got yeah. so lucky. And I still today wonder how I'm going to have health insurance in two years. Like I still mm-hmm. have that. But I feel, I look back, I go, man, what a, sh- a strange and very lucky ride I got to go on. Yeah. And then you had, and then you kind of, uh, well, it's sort of like you expanded what you you know what you were doing personally into its own little universe yeah on the cable network uh, or on the the cable access show uh where it is like it's like okay we're gonna we're gonna get weird we're gonna experiment and and they're they're we're gonna just kind of me and a bunch of other people's like-minded people we're gonna have this ethos you know yeah. and just kind of live in it yeah very much so very much yeah. so and then that that started to catch enough buzz and my name got out there and then there was this this beautiful stretch where it would be like oh and now i get booked to be on an episode of the office i get booked to be on an episode of parks and recreation you know largely cuz i know amy and half the writers are from ucb and i can go do that 
and then I'll fly back to New York and on Wednesday we'll all, you know, I'll have booked a kickboxer. And if I get a trivia question wrong, he'll beat the shit out of me on public access television. And, and, uh, and I can have both. I can have both these things. I can kind of come up for air and do this mainstream stuff that helps pay the bills and makes you feel good. and makes, gives my parents something to be proud of. And then I can also, you know, have a dominatrix dripping hot wax on me. And as I take phone calls from teenagers on public access TV and, and have <laughs> both. And it was, it was a real, real, real golden age of my creative life and my life in general. Yeah. And then, but you can't be on TV without it eventually. On a, a situation like that, People are going to, and you're going to eventually expect, well, I got to do this. We got to make some money on this. God had to try. If, I mean, because TV's not, bluff, t- you know? TV's not a poem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like TV is there to sell shit. And, yes. you know, and that's, and so it's, it's always, there's always this very kind of, you know, varying in varying degrees of, of discomfort between commerce and art. And, you know, that transition, I think, well, I mean, it was kind of like there were false starts, right? Didn't you kind of, they, people were approaching you to try and do more TV stuff. And then. Yeah. We yeah. had Comedy Central bought a pilot of it and passed. I had so many networks call me in for meetings. I, it, some of them very gross. Some of them like people saying, Hey, like, Maybe if you like fire the rest of the cast and we get you like a hot girl as a sidekick, we yeah. can buy your show. And me being like, no, like, come on. Like, like I why are you even talking to me? Yeah. No, like, like this is a gross conversation. And then an- another very funny thing, which you realize like there's some development people who feel you start to learn they feel like they're trapped in a hell where they have these corporate mandates mm-hmm. and they go, oh, they're bringing me in and telling me. They're like, people would come in and be like, I've watched your show for like, years and they're like quoting things back to me and bringing up their favorite bits. And I'm like, Oh my God, this person's a legitimate super fan. And then you start to realize, Oh, they can't buy my show. They just want to have a meeting that makes them feel good in the midst of their, they want to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. In the midst of their hellish life where they have all these corporate mandates, they want to feel cool for an hour. So I've, I flew to LA so they could feel good about taking this meeting for an hour and all these things. But eventually a very small network named Fusion picked it up largely because of this one development person named Alex Fumero who like managed to get us on. It made, it was so funny. That network, I don't even know if the network still exists, um, but it was aimed at appealing to the English speaking generation of Latina and Latino millennials. Wow. And he just loved our show so much that he convinced them that we somehow fit Um but I, I had to keep fighting to make it happen just because I was like, like what? And this is not, this is not bullshit. Like the first time I did your guy's show, it was huge. Cause I, I had acted on, like, I was one of those UCB guys that used to like, you know, come in and dress me up as like a dress up as an elf or a robot and come right, out and right. be in a bit. And that was in the early UCB days. And then, I wrote a book in 2012 and the book publicists were like, yeah, we pitched it to uh, Conan and they want to interview you. And I was like, oh my God. And 
you guys showed a clip of me getting my ass beat by a kickboxer on public access. And that was huge for us. That was huge. That was like one of the turning points that, um, that helped get us on cable eventually, because I always have, I'll say, and I'm not trying to blow smoke. Like, I don't know if this is everybody's experience. I've been on almost all the talk shows at this point. You and Conan are the two people who like, when, when it actually goes to commercial and it looks like that chit chatty BS conversation, like you're actually talking. I'll never forget. You guys showed the kickboxer clip and then we went to commercial and Conan turned around to me and he's like, Hey, what you're doing is cool. You got to keep fighting for it. Like it, it's good. It doesn't make sense. These people are not going to get it though. So just get the audience big enough where they can't ignore you. Don't give up on this, please. And I was like, holy shit, like Conan's telling me not to give up and he's saying he sees what I'm doing here. And that was huge. That was yeah. huge. And then the fact that you guys were also willing to share your audience with us and show that clip was huge because then there were a whole bunch of people that got on board with us who found us through that. Um, and we just had enough things like that happen where it'd be like Seth Meyers would bring me on and and we'd get maybe 2% of the people watching that night would go, we get what this kid's going for. Right. You guys would bring me on. And I think to your credit, I think the Conan fan base, it would be more like 8% would get what we're going and go, oh, okay. And we just built enough of an audience that they had to give us a shot, had to take us seriously. And then, then it became that weird thing of going, oh, I still get to have all this fun. There's this weird network pressure on it now, but also like, 80 people have jobs because of this thing that I didn't give up on. And mm -hmm. that became its own point of pride. It was strange. You're making me, you're making me reminisce and ramble. I apologize for how ramble. <laughs> that's I all am. right. No, that's the idea. That's the idea right. of this. It so, is yeah. Medium. Yeah. It is a talk based medium. Yes. Well, <laughs> tell me about the difficulty of making that bridge into getting on diffusion. And then you were on true TV the last season, yeah. right? It, it yeah. traded over. And tell me, you know, like, why, why did it sort of end? Like, what, what was it? Was it that transition necessarily that made it end? Or was it just, do you think it was going to end at some point anyway? And it, that's just when it ended. I think it probably should have ended a little sooner. Oh, really? Honest. Yeah. How come? Well, uh, I had like a crate in 2016, 17, like we had gotten the show onto cable it was going yeah. really well. Then I had this podcast explode. It got featured on This American Life and it like it was getting like hundreds of thousands of downloads a week after that. And yeah. Berbiglia directed this movie about an improv troupe called Don't Think Twice and he put me in it. And yep. I, I got really good feedback from that. And I had started doing this one one person stand-up style show about my depression. That went to HBO. And all those all those things happened within a year and a half of each other. And I went on this hot streak and then we were in between seasons of the cable show. And my manager was like, you know, you're right now at this place where you're like, you just had your HBO special, get all this critical play praise and between Berbiglia and this American life, you just blew up with like all the NPR lovers. And uh, he's like, as he's like, I know you will not give up on the Gethard show because that's like your family. He's like, but as a manager, I just have to be a good manager and say like, now's the time to try to jump on all this momentum and go for it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I can't, I got to do it. And we did the show for another batch of episodes, probably about another six to eight months. And, um, 
I look back and I realize the network was putting so much pressure on us that I think it was showing up on screen a little bit that I, uh, that the ideas were not totally, they were probably 75% under our control instead of a hundred. Mm. And with a show like ours, that really had an effect. And yeah. I remember once Tom Sharpling, who I think, you know, yeah, I do. Very good friend of mine. He called me once and he had been a big champion. He had really, you know, his radio show, he had, he had let all his fans know about us in the early days. And, uh, he called me one day and he's like, there used to be a thing. He's like, I would watch your show and it would go to commercial. And I'd see you like literally run up to the, cause our, our fans all just sat on the floor. People weren't yeah. in bleachers or anything. He's like, I'd watch you like run up and be like high-fiving kids or like kids would be jumping up and dancing to the house music and you'd run into the crowd and dance with them. And he's like, I just want you to know, I watched your show last night and you threw to commercial and the music started and you put your head down and walked off stage in a beeline, clearly depressed, and they had a perfect overhead shot of it. And I was like, "Oh shit, okay." Like a friend Oops. of mine just a friend yeah. of mine watched me be demoralized, and a lot of that was because the network was beating the hell out of us. And then one of the things I haven't talked much about publicly was that one of the very sad things is that real life does happen, and it. If you have a TV show, it doesn't really accommodate for real life, you know? Like you said, they, at the end of the day, just need to keep selling those commercial slots to advertisers. And um, I had some very, very hard stuff happening in my personal life and some very, very sad stuff that in brutal fashion coincided with our years on cable. Just the three yeah. years we were on cable were three years where if none of that had been happening, stuff happening in my personal life would qualify as three of the hardest years I ever had. And it caught up with me. I just didn't yeah. have enough gas in the tank. Like I'll never forget. I had gotten some really, really bad news in my personal life. Some really hard stuff was happening. And then that day we had a notes call with our network about an outline we turned in the notes call went four hours. Oh then boy. Mad at us. Um, keeping in mind, we're a live show. So they were giving us notes before the show happened. So I'd wow. go out onto the, on, on air going up four hours of them mad at me in my head. And the episode that they gave us four hours of notes on Matt Walsh, who to bring in first full circle, he was the guest. And the premise was that I was locked in a cage for the episode and we went around to different New York City barbershops and salons and legitimately did this, gathered up a hundred pounds of human hair. Our interns and PAs had picked through it to get like old razor blades out of it. It was disgusting. Yeah, of course. A hundred pounds of hair was over this cage and I was locked and there was a key somewhere on the set. And if Matt could find it and free me before a certain point at the episode, I'd be fine. And if not, 100 pounds of human hair would fall on me while I was locked in a cage, which I think is a funny, dumb idea. Like, I think you can see, like, there is a part of me that looks at what Letterman used to do, like dropping shit off the ceiling of a studio, what you guys or, used to do with your characters. Or run, run stuff over with a steamroller, like he used to yeah. do that. Yeah. And then I'd look at what you guys were doing and how obsessed I was with it. And we do our characters and I'm going, this is me trying to take Letterman and Conan and like make it smoke meth. And just that, like, let's, can we just do no monologue? 
take that seven minute totally fucked up bit they would do and make it the full hours just right. that that's right. what all we were trying to do is rip you guys and rip letterman off we, i just wanted to be another step in that lineage you know and i'm proud of it like 100 pounds of human hair falling on the host of a talk show while he's locked in a cage i think that's funny i think the idea of the host having no power to that degree is very funny but it's like when i've just found out bad medical news I don't want to get yelled at for four hours about what's the best way to have human hair fall on you in a yeah, cage. Yeah, like, yeah. We are all taking this too seriously. Like there's six network people on the call. I'm like, this call should be one of you for 15 yes. minutes. Yeah. I yeah. don't need six people unloading on me. So you can all justify why you somehow have a job. Yes. Hair falls out of the sky on a man in a cage. There's, it's pretty simple. I, I mean, we would put the phone on mute and I would just sit there and talk to my showrunner and be like, tell them to cancel the show. He'd be like, don't do that. I'd be like, cancel the show. I don't want to get yelled at for any more about the hair. And then he'd be like, 80 people have jobs. I'd be like, fine, we can't cancel the show. Yeah. And I'd just get yelled at for hours. And then also, you know, be checking my email and being like, oh, another email from a doctor with more bad news. What yeah. is this? And that's why Sharpling is then telling me, hey, I'm like watching you get depressed on air. Yeah. It's a bummer. Yeah. So it probably should have ended a few months sooner. And, uh, and well, it's, you know, you, it's tough. There, what can you do? There, yeah. I mean, and there's still a trend. I, I think the goodwill that people have towards you and what you did. And like the things like what Conan said, I think, I think definitely will outlast the four hours of six people 100% who end up, you know, yeah. God knows where those people are now, you know, I mean, and so, yeah, it's like, it all comes out in the wash and people remember that they don't remember, you know, they remember the ambitiousness. They remember the joy of it. They remember the, the funniness of it. They remember the daringness of it and all that other shit just kind of, you know, and it's unfortunately you're not, you know, that you can't take that to the bank. You know, that's not going to pay your mortgage. And that's the bummer of like a lot of this shit yeah. is like, you know, like, oh yeah, I guess. Yeah. They're also like, I have a child I got to pay for. And exactly. All that shit. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's also sometimes I'll like, you know, I, I still am so close with some of the people used to call the show every week. And like, I just did a show in Pittsburgh this weekend and got breakfast the morning after the show with this kid, Todd from Pittsburgh. He used to call my show all the time. Yeah. And I'm still, I'd still get to have this closeness from a certain era of the show. And there's some people who I feel like watched it and are like, Oh, he sold it out. Oh, it lost its heart. And I'm like, Oh, like I can't go on. I can't, what am I going to do? Tweet out, hey guys, I'm getting really bad medical news that I can't, I don't have the right. freedom to tell no, you. Yeah. Like, I can't tell no. you. I can't. How do I remind you that I have a real life too? And yeah, that don't. Even like the money, like the money, like you said, I'm like, yeah, I still got to. Today's my birthday. I, I still have like. 20, oh, happy birthday. Thanks. I'm like, I still yeah. have 20 solid years to pay a mortgage and find health insurance for my family. And I, how do I do that? And like, but the. The cool thing that I'm at now that will never stop blowing my mind is there's now some people getting successful who were fans of my stuff 11 years ago. Like there's yeah. um there's a, a a cast member on SNL now who's doing stuff that I think is really brilliant. And, and you know, I just like everybody, I watch the show and sometimes I go like, "Ah, oh, this is not for me." And I'm I'm in my 40s, it's not for me. And then every once in a while something'll happen where I'm like, 
this show can still be cool. And mm-hmm. one of the cast members doing that, when I met her, a year, I met her a few years ago before she was Is on- Is that Sarah Sherman? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to say, because I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard, but yeah, I met her and we were in a green room and she was like, she had been catching a bunch of hype. I, I noticed her doing a bunch of stuff in Chicago and I had heard like, oh, there's this show, Hell Trap Nightmare, and they, you would really like it. And I looked into it. And I was like, man, she's cool. And I met her and she was like, I never knew if I would tell you this. She's like, I used to apply to intern on your public access show. And I went and found these old emails from when she was like either late high school, early college, where she's like, let me know if I could come and help. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. How cool is this that there's it's, someone on SNL now who I'm not taking any credit for. No, I, there's no world. She's brilliant. But where I'm like, she liked my stuff when she was yep. in high school. That's so it's cool. One, it's one of the best things is to have been on, to have been a young comedy person looking to do something different, looking to like kind of, you know, to have your heart in the right place and to look to other performers that have their hearts in the right place and then have the same thing, like to to continue that cycle where the stuff that you do matters to kids the way that stuff that your heroes mattered to you. Yeah. That's 100%. pretty damn great, you know? Yeah. And if that's all my legacy is at the end of the day, I sit there and I'm like, that's better than a lot of people can say, you know? Yeah. And, and for, to bring it back to some of the stuff I was saying before of like, to have been such a combination of angry and scared for a lot of my childhood. Yeah. Like I always said, like the show I was trying to make in my head, like me and my brother had it pretty shitty sometimes. And some of my happiest childhood memories are being in my basement with my brother, Greg and us finding like, there was this game show on one of the Spanish language stations called El Gran Juego de la Oca. And we didn't know what was going on, but we thought it was the greatest show in the world. You know, mm-hmm. we grew up in North Jersey. So I, I, I talked about this on another um, like podcast in the Conan family tree, but like uncle Floyd Vavino was a God yeah. to us. Like yeah, yeah. uncle Floyd had this homemade TV show. He's the older brother of the Vavino brothers. Like he, who are we were, Conan band guys. Yeah. yeah. And we would watch him on the UHS stations and we'd be like, Oh my God, this is nuts and amazing. Yeah. And we're watching like, ECW wrestling when it first started. And and just like some of my favorite memories were being in my basement with Greg, just laughing our heads off at the most bizarre things we could find. Weird stuff. Yeah. And I always would sit there and I'd go, I'd like sit with the people who wrote my show on public access. And I'd go, we got to make a show that me and my brother would have liked in our basement when we were 15. Yeah. And I think I did that to the point where now I'm in my forties. And sometimes people come up to me and they'll be like, Oh, my favorite episode of your show is the one where you did X, Y, and Z. And I'll just sit there and go, Oh my God, like today I can't even fathom thinking that's a good idea to do that. <laughs> yep. But yep. back then I was very driven to make something specific because I had a lot of anger in my guts. And I'm like, Yeah. You look back, you go, I think a lot of it was maybe me going, like, can I make a thing that will make the current day version of me less pissed off than I was? Like, can I find a 16-year-old now and make them a little less scared, a little less pissed? Because mm-hmm. I'm so resentful of how much 
I felt that as a kid. Can I give them yeah. the thing that made me feel the same way that that Servotron record felt or that Adam and his package record felt where I listened yeah. to it and I was like, oh, someone out there slightly older than me isn't an asshole. Like, <laughs> can I do that? Can yeah. I do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, where what uh, where are you going from here? What do, I mean, what do you want to do with with your time left on this planet? You know, decades, sure. Yeah, hours. You know, decades and decades and decades. Well, that's always the scariest one, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's tough because I certainly feel less relevant than I ever have. And I don't, some days that fills me with real panic. And some days I feel extremely content with that. Um, I work on my lawn a lot now. I recently signed up. I'm, I'm a volunteer ambulance driver in my small town in oh, New Jersey. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And things like that. Like, And that matters. Yeah. That just matters. It just matters. It you does. Know? It does. And then some days I sit here and I go, there was a time where my phone was ringing a lot more than it is now from my manager and my agents. And should, have I made choices? Have I made a series of choices that have made it harder to do things like make money and pay the mortgage and find health insurance? And I think some of those have been driven by choices I've made. And there's days where that scares me and where I'm filled with panic, but I'm learning that like these feelings of irrelevance on their best days are feelings of really being content. And that's mm -hmm. not a feeling I'm used to. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how to, how to turn the dial where the contentedness outweighs the, the fear of the, irre the irrelevance. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if you're just going to look at it in, in a relative sense, you, you know, you can only feel the irrelevance because you really were hitting it for a while. But when you were hitting it, you didn't, you know, I, I mean, and I look at this in my, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm talking for myself because, you know, my phone doesn't ring enough for me. Yeah. You know, now, I mean, the Conan show ended. I was on, you know, off with Conan for 11 years on the TBS thing and, a, you know, the year before that for the Tonight Show. So I haven't been out in circulation and like my phone is not ringing as much as I would like it to be. And I'm 55 years old. I'm like a 55 year old white guy. And there's, you know, it's like, who gives a shit about those, <laughs> that, that particular yeah. demographic right now. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, it's always sweaty. It's always nerve wracking, but you're feeling irrelevant because you really were relevant there, you know? And that's not, that's that is not a bad thing that's like a no, good it's not. thing you know and then i think too and i go i was also relevant particularly in a sphere of things that were underground and things that were anti establishment and anti-corporate mm -hmm. and i really did live and by the live and die by those things like that was very yeah. real you know and there and were, you did you did what you wanted to do there's a lot of people yeah. that uh, you know that they get into this business and they never get to do what they want. Yeah. 
And you I know. feel great about that. And like I said, like there were times where uh, there was a network that told me, we want to buy your show. We, we need you to fire these three cast members for us to do it. And I just said, goodbye. Like I did it the right way. Of course, of you course. Know? And, uh, and called some bluffs. And when I think about being relevant, I go particularly in that space, a 42 year old white dad of a three-year-old shouldn't be relevant forever like it's good like yeah. like since her name came up i sit here and i go sarah squirm is on snl and she's doing this like she just did a thing the other week it's like her with a camera following her giving you a backstage tour and like one of the props gets messed up and she just rolls with it. and i'm going that's what i want live tv to look like i want it to get messed up i want it to yeah, feel loose yeah. and sloppy and i want someone like her in charge of it i don't know that someone like me should be in charge of that anymore it mm -hmm. gives me so much joy and hope to see someone like Sarah on a platform as mainstream as SNL on NBC and things getting messed up on TV and her cackling with joy when it happens. And I don't know yeah. Sarah well enough that I've reached out and said this to her, but I sit there and I go, stuff is getting messed up on SNL. Like they, the outside perspective, I, I was a guest writer there for two weeks in 2007. I don't know how it works, but they don't like when stuff gets messed up. Yeah, it's yeah. messed up. And she's giggling about it. And I love that. And I hope it happens more and more. And I go, it isn't someone who looks and feels like me who should be the rabble rouser in 2022. I was the rabble rouser in 2011 and it made sense. But now that should be someone who doesn't look and sound like me. And that should be someone who's pissed off about things different than the things I was pissed off about a decade yeah. ago. Like there's people, you know, at the end of the day, all the comedy needs to be funny, right? But like the rabble rousing comedy right now, like there's people whose rights are being taken away. There's people who feel trampled. There's people who feel bullied. And I don't know that that's me anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I graduated out after a certain degree of acceptance by the industry and the mainstream. And I, I had some years where I made some decent money and I have a kid now and I don't have the energy to go on public access TV and explain all the things that piss me off anymore because I'm older and more tired and there's less things that piss me off. And also there's people who have a lot more reasons to be pissed off and I really want to see the art they make and I really want to find ways to support it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when I see people like Sarah, when I see people like Megan Stalter starting to blow up, I'm like, good. I've been loving her stuff for years. And like, yeah, Z way doing these interviews Z way does where she just makes people so uncomfortable on purpose where I'm like, good. Yes. There's, there are people mm -hmm. out there making some stuff that is yeah really funny and also pretty uncomfortable and has yeah. some teeth and has some fire in its guts. Yeah. And I'm happy about that. And ultimately I'm happy that it's not me. Cause it's good that it's not me, but it's also scary got, because I got a kid and he needs insurance. Yeah. But also it's like this. Yeah. But you've got a kid. So it's yeah. like, you can't, you can't get, you know, you were living for a cable access show and then you were I living was. for a cable show. You don't need to do that anymore. Live for no. you. You know, yeah. you, you're married, you got a family, you got a house, you got a yard. That's all. That's all. I would say equally important in terms of like your history, like, you know, you you did it. You did a great show, but now it's time to raise a kid. It is, and right? and you, and you don't want that divided attention. You know, I mean, you you got to make a living for sure. Yeah, but you know, that's like that was one of the beautiful things about going back to work for Conan is I had eleven years where I lived seven minutes from work, and I was home for dinner every night. It's the best from when my kids well. 
when from when they were one was fourteen and one was nine, and until now, you that's know, incredible. Yeah, it's the best. Or, no, it's been a even less than that. Yeah, that was it was even because. Yeah, no ten, no ten and six. I'm uh, they were. Yeah, and yeah. you wouldn't trade that for anything. Right? Uh, it, uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's been the silver I mean, lining I, for the pandemic for me is I haven't been able to go on the road as much. And my wife at one point was like, "You and Cal have a friendship that you wouldn't have if you were gone absolutely. every weekend." And I'm absolutely. like, "I I love that. I think she's yeah. totally right, and I love it. Yeah, I love it." Well, what what do you think is the main thing you can take away from your journey this far? And I say journey, you know, with a grain of salt, because a lot of people say that and it makes me puke. But, uh, you know, what I mean, do you kind of feel like there's a moral to your story thus far? Well, you know, I think the... Um the number, I think the number one thing that I look back on is it revolves around the idea of community. Mm -hmm. I was really, really, there were times where it felt like such an uphill battle and it felt like I was just like shouting into a void. But when I was very young, felt very much like I had my guard up, found music and I saw this community where people belonged. And I felt like I was on the fringe of that. And then comedy, I found a way where I was right in the center of it. And then I look at a lot of the stuff I did and I go, there was, I needed a community that didn't exist. So I went and built it. And I think that at the end of the day is the moral of the story is, I think everyone needs some sense of community or you start to go insane. And I think creative people in particular need a sense of community and you go insane. And um, I feel like I was someone who was very lucky to have a few different phases of my life where I found a community where I felt safe. And, and when it felt like that was wearing off, where I built communities where a lot of other people felt safe, particularly creatively. And um, I think for me, the moral of the story is that it really never was about money. It really never was about fame. It, 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 I look back and all these years after the show got canceled, they go, oh, the thing I miss the most is that I got to be around other driven, creative weirdos all the time. Mm -mm. And that sense of community got us all through some, some stretches that were not the easiest. And uh, finding that community, I think, is key for anybody. And I admire the people who are out there finding it now. And... I, I actually have almost no regrets. You know, I have almost no regrets. And if there's one regret I have, and I'm lucky that I realized it while I was still in the thick of it, before I had my kid, before I was married, when I still was able to like stay up all night for the sake of art, like there was, there were some time, there were some stretches where I would sit and I would stress about, man, it's happening for other people. And I came close to another job and didn't get it. And, oh, this person I taught in an improv class at UCB is on TV and famous now. And like, I got to just keep doing the work, but I'm stressing, I'm stressing. And I look back and I realize like those were some of the best. If I knew how much fun it was to just sit in the back of McManus on 7th Avenue with my other improv friends at three in the morning, eating fries drinking whatever, depending on what stage of my sobriety I was at. 
if I understood how much that was the golden age of my life, I wouldn't have dwelled on the stress of it as much as I did. Mm -hmm. Because that sense of community was just like, I look back and I'm like, it was just burning so white hot. Yeah. And not everybody gets that. And uh, I'm glad, I'm glad I was able to build some communities along the way and be a part of some other ones. And uh, if there's one, th if there's anybody hearing it who identifies with this, I would say the one thing I will encourage you is like, when you're in that stretch, when you have four roommates and you're picking up weird day gigs and you're not sure how it's going to end, like the stress is real. And also understand that that is simultaneously the most fun you will ever have. So enjoy it more than I did. Well, that's a good place to leave this. Uh, Chris, I really appreciate your time. Uh, where, where can people, uh, where can they get you at now these days? Chris well, I, I still got the beautiful anonymous podcast, which is a lovely, lovely thing in my life. I go on the road. I'm doing a new stand up hour that is very emo as you might expect from me. And, um, I'm doing the Edinburgh fringe festival this year with that. I'm taking it all over the country, chrisgeth.com for tickets. And, uh, those are the big ones. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks again for, for spending some time with me. Oh, thank you. It's a true joy every time I get we get to talk, and I, I mean it. I do too. I mean that. I I agree. Uh, ditto, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> and thank all you out there for listening. And uh, I'll be back next week with another guest here on the Three Questions. Bye bye. Got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. The associate producer is Jen Samples, supervising producer Aaron Blair, and executive producers Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.